You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Okay, title of today's message is Fools for Christ. Rather fitting going into tomorrow, right? And this is the last time we're going to be meeting until the end of next month. So uh, I thought it would be a good time for us to take a look at one of the stops that Paul, the Apostle Paul, made on one of his missionary journeys, actually his second missionary journey. Uh, It was a stopover that he had in Corinth, which is in southern Greece. Uh, It's located near the sea. There's an isthmus in between there from Athens. It's about 50 miles from Athens. And uh, with that, when Rome conquered that particular area, it gave them control over two amazing harbors. Now, they, they tried digging a canal to connect the two. It didn't quite work out. It wasn't actually completed until the 1800s. So I don't know if it was over budget for them or they, what it is that took place that they weren't able to make that work. But anyways, with that, as you can imagine, we know the significance of transportation, especially by sea, uh, the ability to move goods in and out. It was a very, very active area from a standpoint of import-export, which would make it incredibly wealthy it was as well. Um, and with that, with that wealth and the traffic and all the different cultures that were melding in that particular area, Corinth was probably not a whole lot unlike what we would expect today in a Las Vegas or a Bourbon Street during spring break. It, that's exactly what it was like in the course of its day. Now, within the city limits, there was a temple that was dedicated to the pagan goddess Venus. As some of you may know her as Aphrodite. That's the Greek equivalent, but when Rome took it over, it became the temple for Venus. And with that, Paul, as he stayed in that particular community, realized that that particular temple housed over 1,000 prostitutes, which they would refer to as priestesses. And uh, needless to say, sexual sin was the norm for the people in Corinth. Lust was something that was celebrated as a part of worship when it came to their idols. And it was, again, we can see today, it was really an amazing city when it comes to the archaeological stuff that's been left behind, and that some of the architecture was amazing. It was incredibly beautiful. But obviously with that, it was enveloped in sin to its very core. And the, the time frame on this right now is about 50 A.D. It's during this time that Paul meets an incredible couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila, and he works with them to help spread the gospel of Christ through this particular city. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to kind of reference this, a couple of more historical aspects that we see in the scriptures. But in Acts 18, verses 1 through 11, we see the Christians at Corinth. There, there were this ministry of Jesus Christ that was made of disciples, very much like Priscilla and Aquila. With that, it also consisted of the Gentiles that had been baptized into Christ in that particular community, and they worshiped together a lot of the time in Priscilla and Aquila's home. And again, it gives us the significance of the home. Well, we'll see this a little bit more as we go through things scripturally this morning. Some of those individuals understood the Old Testament and the significance of what the prophets had prophesied about when it came to this promised Messiah. Some had, as we stated earlier, based on the community, their background was in the likes of worshiping Venus and other Roman idols. So you have this incredibly interesting dichotomy and mix of people from various cultures and backgrounds. And with that, Paul stayed there teaching uh, the Word of God for about a year and a half with Priscilla and Aquila. Every Sabbath, as we see in Acts 18, verse 4, he would reason in the synagogue to try and persuade Jews and the Greeks to come to Christ. A little bit later in that passage, we see Silas and Timothy joining him to help 
with the work of getting the gospel out there. Later, another believer named Apollos would be mentioned by, or mentored by Aquila and Priscilla and lead to, basically they led in Corinth as well in Acts 18, 27 through 28. So, thinking about this for a moment, the time and energy, the individuals involved, the likes of Paul, Timothy, Aquila, Priscilla, Silas, and others. And we look at the challenges that Corinth had, some of the same challenges we can have today. Pride, opinions, arrogance. Again, taking into consideration all of these very different backgrounds and past. And unfortunately, one of the things that came out of that is they foolishly divided themselves up into cliques. They lost sight of the big picture, and they focused on themselves. And ultimately, that led to them becoming a very divided church. And it's why Paul's first letter to the Corinthians began with an appeal for unity. If you turn there with me to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought, my brothers. Some from Chloe's household inform me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of, the, of Paul? Now, you can see the little graphic that I have here. How many of you have played Jenga? So when you think about this from a spiritual standpoint, as our opinions start to filter on in and God's direction gets pulled on out, what happens to the foundation that we have in Christ? It's kind of like that Jenga tile, right? I mean, it gets weaker and weaker until eventually, you know how it goes. Hopefully you're not the one, but that piece, final piece gets pulled out and the whole thing comes down. And this is ultimately where Corinth was at at this point in time. You know, these individuals began to make the teacher more important than what was being taught. They began to fight about which group was best instead of rallying around the power of the cross. And this is what ultimately happens when people are much more focused on self than the, and the things that make them feel important rather than being outwardly focused and focused on others. Ultimately, through that, the cross is emptied of its power. The purpose of the cross, as we all know, is about reconciliation, right? Reconciling us to God. The power of the cross is that Jesus the perfect son of God died for each and every one of us and, and represents atonement for each of us. Atonement ultimately means the reconciliation of God and humankind through Christ Jesus to make us one body with Jesus Christ as the head. This is why Paul asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And I think what we see with Paul after this time having invested all this time in the church there in Corinth, it's breaking Paul's heart that the Corinthians are getting caught up in these quarrels and arguments over the worldly issues when the very purpose of the cross was to push those issues aside and unify us as one. You know, Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Not a Fan, said the greatest danger in life is anything other than Jesus it becomes a foundation for our confidence. 
The Corinthians, like some of us today, accepted the message of the cross, but didn't pursue it the way that they needed to. They weren't all in. They stayed immature in their faith, believing that they were smart enough to kind of figure out life on their own as they went through it. And when it came to their opinions and rights, they asserted them over the needs of others and over God's word. And their foundation started to slip into anything other than Christ. It's no wonder the Apostle Paul reaches a point of frustration and says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8, he says, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings and now without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might become kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like men condemned to die in the arena. I think we all understand the significance of what he was talking about here. Christians went to their death in the arena for their faith. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. Now, I think we see a little bit of facetiousness coming out here with Paul, and we'll see it in a couple of the other passages this morning as well. But you think about this. We've got Paul, Apollos, Timothy, and Silas, and many others that were on the front lines, being persecuted, beaten, imprisoned. In verses 11 through 13, they had been hungry, thirsty, homeless, and brutally treated. He says, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. And even with that, when we, we, we see the church here in Corinth, even though they had this knowledge of Christ, and they were living in this relatively rich comfort, Corinthians ignore sexual sin as a man sleeps with his father's wife. They sue each other in court. They engage in relationships where they tolerate gossip, swindlers, drunks, and greedy people who claim to be church people. They claim to be Christians. They claim to be disciples. Yet they argue about insignificant issues like food, and they hurt one another. And even when they meet together, they're not united around the cross. They're divided into cliques and factions based on worldly perspective and position. Apostle Paul shares a devastating overview of what this had done to the worship in Corinth. Paul's assessment was the harm of their worship outweighed the good of their worship. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. Give me an amen if you get there, or when you get there. Amen. Getting there's better than if. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. It says, I am told that you can't get along with each other when you worship. And I'm sure that some of what I've heard is true. You're bound to argue with each other, but it's easy to see which of you have God's approval. Do you think he really meant that here? And I, I think we got a couple things going on. I think there were probably those who were conducting themselves in a proper fashion and because of that, it was easier to tell who was the actual Christian in that setting. But I think there were others that were more caught up in status and the money they had and the position they had in society and were drawing people's attention to that. So I think there was a, a facetious aspect of what Paul was addressing here in this as well. 
He says when you meet together, you don't really celebrate the Lord's Supper. You even start eating before everyone gets to the meeting, and some of you go hungry while others get drunk. Don't you have homes where you can eat and drink? Do you hate God's church? Do you want to embarrass people who don't have anything? What can I say to you? I certainly cannot praise you. I've already told you what the Lord Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed, and it came from the Lord himself. He took some bread in his hands, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is given for you. Eat this and remember me. And then after the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine in his hands, and he said, This is my blood. And with it, God makes his new agreement with you. Drink this and remember me. The Lord meant that when you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you tell about his death until he comes. But if you eat the bread and drink the wine in a way that isn't worthy of the Lord, you sin against his body and blood. That's why you must examine the way you eat and drink. If you fail to understand that you are the body of the Lord, you will condemn yourselves by the way that you eat and drink. That's why many of you are sick and weak and why a lot of others have died. If we carefully judge ourselves, we won't be punished. But when the Lord judges and punishes us, he does it to keep us from being condemned from the rest of the world. Think about this again. We have Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, Timothy, Silas, all having spent this incredible amount of time to build this amazing foundation in the word of God and in Christ. Paul himself had been there for about a year and a half. And then just a few years later, this is what they had. You know, I think this is the bottom line. We all know this. All of us sin. All of us can struggle with selfishness, competitiveness, complacency, attitudes. I think I've had an attitude maybe once. Any of you that know me closely know that it's been many more times than that. And I think, honestly, as I, as I get older, this is an area that I've got to be careful in because it's amazing how cynicism is something that, that can be in there. Uh, I don't want to blame it on age, but I'm definitely a lot more cynical today than I was when I was younger. I'm not as idealistic as I was when I was younger. But the Bible gives us the ability to recognize that, whether we see it in the mirror when we look at ourselves, or I've got somebody like Andy Wingy that points it out to me. You know, we just had, we just had our reviews. Um, Andy is our supervisor in that capacity, and uh, you know one of the areas that I really love about Andy that is becoming, I would say, probably a little bit better myself, is he is the most amazingly temperate person of anybody that I know. And uh, I think as many of you know, I've been involved in many issues with conflict within the church over the last few years. This past year in particular, more than I would like to admit. And there were instances where I really wanted to pull the trigger and just get it done because I had allowed myself to get frustrated. And Andy would appeal to me, bro, cool your jets, slow your roll, give it some time, pray to God. And it's amazing. I look back in those situations, and they, they've turned out far better than they would have if I had pulled the trigger out of frustration rather than listening to him and following the example he's modeled, modeled for me when it comes to temperance. So again, we can all struggle with selfishness, competitiveness, complacency, attitude. You know, I think every one of us have certain individuals that we like more than others. But when our rights, our preferences, our political views, our opinions, and our group becomes less about building up and more about tearing down, 
these groups can become more important than the unity of the body of Christ. And people ultimately get spiritually weak, sick, asleep, and can die spiritually. The thing that Paul talks about when it comes to being for a fool for Christ, we are no longer fools for the sake of Christ. When we slip into that, those patterns, we can become just fools. So what's the answer? Is there any hope for unity for the Corinthians? Is there any hope for unity for us? A group of people that claim to be the body of Christ? Yeah, a lot of you, I've already heard it. Thankfully, yes, amen? Why is this important for us today? Because we're still one church. We're God's church. From a biblical standpoint, you know, there's a lot of different names. Sometimes they were named after cities. Sometimes they were named based on the way they were, cl they were classified, the way. There are a lot of different things that we see biblically when it comes to that reference. But the one thing that unified them all, it didn't matter the nomenclature as far as what they said on the front side. They were all God's church. They are all built on the foundation of Christ. So with us, there's not going to be a division between north and south. There's not going to be any competition Neither one is better than the other, amen? Because we're all one in Christ. The Apostle Paul puts this in his letter to the Corinthians. There's three things that would heal them as a church, enable them to be effective for God. And all of them are pretty basic, which I'm grateful for. And I think when it comes to those three things, my hope for each and every one of us is that we will be every bit as effective if we take these basics that Paul challenged the Corinthian church on and apply them to ourselves personally. So what are those three things that, the, that Paul challenged the Corinthian church on? There's three of them. One's to serve others. One's to love others. And the third one is to grow up. You can take that however you want based on the pause. So when it comes to serving others, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, it reads, my friends, you asked me about, a spiritual, about spiritual gifts. I want you to remember that before you became followers of the Lord, you were led in all the wrong ways by idols that cannot even talk. Now, I want you to know that you were led by God's Spirit. You will say that Jesus is Lord, and you will never curse Jesus. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but they all come from the same Spirit. There are different ways to serve the same Lord. And we can each do different things. Yet the same God works in all of us and helps us in everything that we do. The Spirit has given each of us a special way of serving others. And this is one of the things that through the years I've really appreciated about God is that he is so incredibly inclusive. Unlike the Corinthian church that was focused on stature, money, who you were in society, all those different things, it didn't matter. Because coming on in, the playing field is level. Every single one of us has been given something that we can be effective for God in. And this is one of the things I love about what's been going on lately is we've been, uh, we've been really taking the time to assess, what are those gifts? What, what is the, the thing that God personally has given me? And then people with that acknowledgement, after doing those assessments, coming to the forefront with what they want to do for God and what they want to do for God's church. I mean, I'm excited about it. I'm super encouraged. I love the new faces we're seeing in so many different areas, whether it's first impressions, whether it's ushering, whether it's the singers up front, 
We're going to be seeing with our community service programs, there's so many areas. And again, that ties into all the parts of the body, all the ligaments of the body, doing in advance what God has prepared for them to do. You know, and just thinking this through, when you and I exit the waters of baptism and are filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's so we can serve others. Again, he empowers us with different gifts and abilities, but he also fills us with an attitude that is for the common good, and the common good is the body of Christ. As we, we saw in this passage, there are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of work, but in all of them, it's the same God at work. You're never saved by your works. But you are saved so that the Holy Spirit can work through you. And when we faithfully serve, we're connected to others as family. You and I aren't just consumers. We are ambassadors. We can become partners with Christ in kingdom building. And the truth is, you never join a church. God adds us to the church through our salvation. And it's never something that we retire from because we've done our share. That's a work theology. It's not a grace theology. As long as you're alive, grace has been extended to you. So therefore, service connects us with God. True servants are unifying people. Christ enables them. Christ enables us. And then we ultimately will do what's needed. And then God gives the increase. Amen? Number two, we need to love others. Paul follows the spiritual challenge of the uh, issues with their worship in chapter 13, which is known as the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. Probably uh, one of the most used passages in the Bible when it comes to weddings. This world would be a different place. It was the most used passage everywhere, amen? Paul says, what if I could speak all languages of human and angels? If I did not love others, I would be nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Pretty annoying, right? What if I could prophesy and understand all secrets and all knowledge? What if I had faith to move mountains? I would be nothing unless I loved others. What if I gave it all away, all that I own, and I let myself be burned alive? I would gain nothing unless I loved others. And then the portion that we're all pretty familiar with, Love is kind and patient, never jealous, boastful, proud, or rude. Love isn't selfish or quick-tempered. It doesn't keep record of wrongs that others do. Love rejoices in truth, but not in evil. Love is always supportive, loyal, hopeful, and trusting. Love never fails. Everyone who prophesies will stop, and unknown languages will no longer be spoken. All that we know will be forgotten. Some of you have done this drill before, but we know that if we were to substitute God in the place of the love that we see in this passage, wouldn't the passage still not hold true? If we were to substitute Jesus in place of love in the passage, would it not continue to hold true? And I think this ultimately is the test for each of us. If we substitute our name in the passage, does it hold true? And you know, it's a good passage for me personally. I do this from time to time. I'll pull it out, and I'll plug my name in. It's like, 
Okay, I sort of kind of think I got that one, but man, I royally screwed up on this one. And I, I majorly need to work on that one. And I think if we were to take the time to do that, again, the impact that we're going to be able to have is going to be so much greater because people are going to see a significant difference in our lives. Now, you can plug in, you know, I don't even want to go there because you're going to start thinking negatively about some of your coworkers, but there are situations that we can apply this passage to, and we know that if we were to get caught up in it the way others are, there's nothing in this passage that would hold true for us as Christians. But we've got to be careful. Love is something that's amazing. Love looks for opportunities. Love obeys the Holy Spirit when he prompts us with an impulse to share our faith, the good news, the gospel, with somebody maybe we don't even know. Love speaks kindly, and love wants to help those who are hurting. And it does it when we take the opportunity to serve others on our own or even collectively through the community service programs that we have. Love is a daily adventure of looking at others the way Jesus Christ would look at others. When we live like this, love becomes a glue that holds us together, and the love of Christ becomes a glue that nothing in the world can ever break. Romans 8, verse 37. So as known all, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Love never fails. Love serves others. Love others. Paul gives us one more cure to keep us unified as a people of God, a people of purpose, and a people of impact. Final one, grow up. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things behind me. You know, on the uh, subject of growing up, I, I really love this next slide. As most of you know, I'm a grandfather. I have a three-year-old granddaughter by the name of Cadence. Now, I don't know about you, but I think she's pretty sinking cute. So is Caleb, but anyway, we'll talk about him another time. I know if Jack was up here, she'd probably be talking about Caleb. But when she first started out in preschool, it was interesting. Cadence thought the world revolved around her. At home, before she went to preschool, anything that was there in the way of toys were Cadence's toys. Cadence didn't have to share her toys. But Cadence in preschool, when she had toys in her hands, would lead to some potential issues. Like if somebody took them from her, she decked them. As you can see, in a social society that we have in preschool, that might present itself a little bit of an issue. Now, this might be part of life if you're two to three years old, right? But if it's still a part of your life when you're 30, 40, 50, 60, or older, there's a real problem. And what Paul is saying in this passage here 
What Paul is saying in this passage here is that many of the Corinthians had never moved behind or beyond their childhood in their Christian lives. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1 reads, My friends, you're acting like the people of the world. That's why I cannot speak to you as spiritual people. You are like babies as far as your faith in Christ is concerned. You know, if we can learn from our first century brothers and sisters, who on occasion went off the rails, think of how much more we'll be able to do for Christ. You know, I, again, I'm going to share about Cadence here. Um, as a three-year-old, she's incredibly interactive, very talkative, has a pretty extensive vocabulary, and she already thinks she's an attorney. And this was a first for me last week. Anytime I would bring anything up, it didn't matter what it was. There was a show that she watches called The Odd Bods. And, uh, you know, we're, we're at home and we're going through Netflix and she's wanting us to put on Pink Pink. I'm like, what the heck is Pink Pink? So I'm figuring, you know, I'm, I've been out of this for a little bit. So I, I go to search and I put in Pink Pink and there's absolutely nothing that comes up that is even close to what I think she's looking for. So we start scrolling through the kids' stuff on Netflix, and she's all, right there, pink, pink. And I'm reading the caption under it, and I'm like, no, oddbods. She's all, no, pink, pink. And I'm all, no, oddbods. You know, this probably went on longer than it should have been that I was the adult in this <laughs> particular argument. Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't doing real good in the temperance department there, Andy. But last week, I was amazed with her because I picked her up from preschool, and it was hailing. So, you know, she's all excited. She's bouncing up and all, down off the walls. You know, Pop Pop's here to pick her up. And she's all, Pop Pop, it's raining. And I'm all, yeah. She goes, there's ice coming down from the sky. And I'm all, yeah, it's hailing. And she's all, no, it's raining. I go, Cadence, see that stuff that's bouncing on the ground? That's ice. That ice is coming down from the sky. That's called hail. She looks at me, kind of quizzical for a moment, and her response was, oh. I'm like, holy smoke, man. We're, 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 we got some maturity going on here. There's a little bit of growth. First time ever we've talked about anything significant where there wasn't an argument. We've got to be careful, because the next few months, honestly, it's a field ripe for all kinds of stuff. The next few months can bring out childish behavior here amongst ourselves if we're not careful. We're developing two brand new worship centers, and guess what? Lo and behold, there probably will be a kink or two. I'm just saying, maybe not. But I think we've got to keep in mind as we move forward, Sundays are about worshiping God and giving the unchurched the opportunity to do the same in a loving environment where we are more outwardly focused than self-focused. We're the same church, the same body of Christ, just working towards being more accessible to seekers from city to city, just like the early church, which needed to be redirected on occasion to serve others, to love others, and grow up. Amen. Two more verses and we'll land this thing. 
1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I would imagine each and every one of you love the idea that we can embrace this here. We are not of those that are perishing, but we are those that believe in God's greatest commandment, which we know in Matthew 22, verse 36 reads, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All in the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know, God has cleared a path for us today just as he did for our forefathers, but it's up to us to stay on that path. Love for one another is love for God. And that kind of love ultimately eliminates the do's and don'ts and gives us the ability to have our names added to the roll call of the faithful. Because we will take personal responsibility for our own individual walk, which will give us the ability to be fools for Christ, to love one another, and to love the lost. Amen? My nephew and his wife, Matt and Jill Dickens, are going to be coming on up here to share their testimonial with this morning, and Matt will be closing us out with a prayer for communion. There we go. Good morning, church. Good morning. This is my beautiful, awesome wife, Jill. And I am Matt, and today we have the privilege of sharing the testimonial part in regarding the cross. My wife is going to go ahead and share a couple things with you guys. Come on, Jill. Hey. Okay, I'm, I'm pretty tall, but I'm not this tall. Right. Word. Seriously? Okay. <laughs> I'm loud, so it's good. Um, so I actually feel really um, humbled and sobered today just to share, like, a small part of my life. Um, for me, I think the past 25 years that I've been a disciple, the cross has always been um, something that I've really relied on. It's definitely a representation of my faith. But on May 7th, 2013, it gave me a whole new meaning because that was the day I literally died. Uh, it was a normal day. <laughs> Like any other day in prison, working in a prison, I should say. I'll quantify that. <laughs> okay. You're welcome. <laughs> I know, look, he looks hardcore, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, so anyway, um, I was having a meeting with my supervisors in my office, and the next thing I know, so one minute I'm having a meeting, and the next thing I know I'm waking up in the ER. Um, I'm definitely a person that's wired intellect over emotion, so I think that's the psychologist in me. Um, so for whatever reason, I mean, God obviously knows me way better than I know myself. He knows every hair on my head. I can't begin to tell you how many I have. Um, but he definitely knew that it would be way more impactful and way more, um, meaningful at the gravity of what occurred if I didn't remember it and I had to hear the account of the three people that actually saved my life of what happened. Um, I can tell you the first in a very few times in my life I was bawling every time that I heard it. Um, but it was, um, yeah, I was having a meeting. Um, I fell dead. I was pronounced clinically dead for five minutes. Uh, 
Um, I was in my chair. The next thing I know, I'm on the floor. They frantically, the staff in my office, right, to totally started ministering CPR. Nothing. My husband gets a call. Your wife is not breathing. She has no pulse. Um, so they're giving me CPR. One of the corrections officers was like, medic, medic. So uh, they brought up an AED machine, which is like a portable defibrillator. Um, and I was not responding. So the nurse yells, clear, shock, nothing, right? Clear, shock, nothing. Clear, shock, nothing. Clear, shock, nothing. Clear, right? I mean, I think it was desperation, shock. Oh my gosh, she has a pulse, a very faint pulse, but she has a pulse. Um, I definitely think of Acts 7, 26, where God determines the time and place. Um, for me, and, you know, luckily Matt, I think we're definitely those, you know, I'm, okay, this happens, like, put your big girl pants on, move through it, like, you just got to do that, trust in God, and let's go, like, life always, always takes more than it gives, always takes more than it gives, like, the Bible is full of promises that we will suffer in the name of Jesus, right? Always, always. And it's one hit after another. Sometimes I'm not super fired up about it. I'm not like, it's your lot in life, honey. Like, you're always going to have a thorn, you know? I think God does whatever is going to keep us faithful. Um, but they shared, you know, these people shared about how desperate they were. Like, they shouldn't have shocked me that many times, right? Shouldn't have. I think it's like three or whatever. Um, they, I don't have any brain damage. Some days I wonder, but for the most part, I don't have any brain damage. Because of the CPR, uh, Matt tells me the first thing I said when I woke up, because I was repeating myself, and he's like, what's wrong? And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't go back to prison stupid. I can't go back to prison stupid. Because um, the inmate, you know, I got I to gotta be on my game. But um, of all the things to worry about, and again, I think... Um, for me, as I'm sharing this, yesterday I was like, I don't know, like, I'm feeling it, but I'm not feeling it. And Matt had kept a recording of one of the people telling me what happened. And I just was like, oh my gosh. Um, and I could sit here and I could be like, you know, the side effects of my death are, I'm rarely hungry. I have a super slow metabolism now. Um, I lost half my hair. <laughs> I can't have kids. Um, I'm tired sometimes. Some days I'm great. Uh, but I'm super grateful because God still, you know, kept me that fighter spirit. And the things that we focus on, at least in our relationship, is not that stuff, right? Because I can, you know, I can, I can make it work. Is, <laughs> is that, yes, I died, but I got the awesome privilege on two occasions to really participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, I can definitely, like Lazarus is my homie now because I, I feel kindred. Um, I get to rock a really cool scar. I have a defibrillator. I carry it around. I'm GPSed in. If it's weird, it's trippy, I get a call. Um, but I get a really cool scar, and I get, you know, it's a battle wound. And I think that's the thing is, um, in Exodus 14, 14, it says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. 
I think, <laughs> yeah. So literally when you're dead, you have no choice, right, to be still. Um, and he fought for me. He fought for me through people. He fights for me every day. Um, he, he loves me. And Matt's all, he ain't done with you yet, honey. Like, he ain't done. Like, you're not done. And uh, I'm not done. So I got to keep moving forward. We have to keep moving forward. And um, I don't know. I really appreciate you guys listening today. Um, and I really feel honored because it is, it is it's, it's, it's crazy. It is crazy, um, all of this. And it's, it's so amazing to be a walking miracle and get the opportunity to tell my story. And that's the stuff. Um, that I need to always remember. And that's the stuff that brings people to God because these are literally how amazing God is. Like he will fight for you. You need only to be still. Amen. So I got a scripture I want to share with you guys in Proverbs chapter three, verse five through six. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In your way, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. And regarding this whole situation was the first time in all my life that I felt completely powerless. I get, I'm at work. They call me. They say, hey, your wife's being taken to the hospital. She is not breathing. And I got a 45-minute drive. And I told God, I said, God, I'm going to be really mad at you if I arrive and my wife is dead. And, you know, the reality is, is there's nothing I could do. There's the one thing in all my life I completely felt vulnerable. And, like, wow, there's nothing. I, all I can do, God, is just pray to you and trust in you and whatever your will is. But I'm still not going to be happy if I arrive and she's not there by my side. And all I could do is pray. You know, that's all I could do is pray. And, and I thought about the cross. And I'm like, Wow. The power of the cross, that's what changes lives. You know, and I, and I know if I didn't surrender to God, who knows if she'd be here today. You know, but with that, let, let's go ahead and pray for the communion. Dear God, thank you for this time and this opportunity to pray, God, for you, your son Jesus Christ, God, and how you allowed him to lay his life down on that cross. God, I, I know initially in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did not. But he prayed, God, and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed to get his heart right to embrace that, God. And thank you for his sacrifice and thank you for your love for us, God, to allow your one and only son to go through that, God. And I really pray that we can reflect on that, God. It is because of the power of the cross that we're all here today, God. Father, I also pray that you're also with uh, Flex Wheeler, uh, Rico's friend, God, who has health complications right now. God, I really pray that you could use the power of the cross on him to help him through that as well, God. Thank you for this time and this opportunity to remember the cross and remember your love and ultimately remember Jesus Christ. God, thank you for this time. In your son's holy name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.